is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. The shooting down of MH17, how the world reacted. The pressure increases for a ceasefire in Gaza. Muslims and the military, the Defence Secretary tells Sitrep he wants to boost numbers. The Muslim community is hugely, a huge part now of British society and the armed forces need to reflect that. And farewell to Lusty as she sails home for the last time. A week on, no one has been held to account for the shooting down of the Malaysia Airlines plane MH17. The bodies have started being repatriated, the flight recorders are being analysed and the finger-pointing continues. So who's to blame and what are the implications? Well, joining us now, as usual, is our defence analyst Christopher Lee and also Professor Paul Rogers from the Department for Peace Studies at Bradford University. Hello to both of you. Uh, Paul, first of all, how worried do you think President Putin is? Is about this event last week? I think not so much worried as furious. Uh, essentially, it puts him in a difficult position. Uh, he reacts very strongly and, and antagonistically when he's put under pressure from abroad. Uh, but essentially, it's clear that there's been sufficient Russian support for the rebels uh, to allow them to get some very modern equipment. Uh, internally, Putin is still pretty popular, but there have been more than a million refugees come across from the Donetsk region of Ukraine into Russia, and it's proving quite difficult to cope with that. But I think the point that Putin really fears is that this has actually brought the huge international spotlight on him at a time when he doesn't want it. What do you think he'll do next, then? I think that it depends very much on how the West reacts. If you actually get um, relatively low levels of sanctions, then rather quietly Putin will probably put more pressure on the rebels. There's a very strong suspicion that the speed with which they eventually gave up the black box recorder will be down to pressure that he put on behind the scenes. So I think you're getting very much a public declaratory policy which is supporting the rebels and you know resisting anything that the West does. But privately I think there will be movement and that may at least ease the crisis a bit now that most of the bodies have been recovered and the black box recorder has moved over to, to Britain. And Christopher, what do you make of the way the West has reacted to this? Well, it, 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 it's marvellous and it's a cock-up conspiracy uh, theory and that is that it was the wrong aircraft shot down uh, which is gaining uh, credibility. But first and foremost, do you remember right at the beginning we had President Obama we had Prime Minister Cameron and they were just by using the name Putin they were sort of putting his fingerprints all over this somewhere that, in fact, that if he hadn't started the whole thing, if he hadn't been putting, uh, establishing... Because David Cameron said they didn't, he did not believe that Putin intended this to happen, that, but he did like to put some responsibility on his shoulders, and, didn't he? And so when you say that publicly, what the public does, it doesn't go through the argument. It just clicks, Putin, that's our boy, he did it, you see. Now, what's happening in the past 48 hours, the intelligence people who briefed Putin, uh, briefed Cameron, briefed uh, Obama quite sensibly in what they knew, have now briefed again, and it was on Wednesday morning that they were putting it around Whitehall, certainly. They're rowing back on this. They're, they're, they're getting very, very softer on, on, on what has happened. And so, yet again, it allows the, if you call it the other side, it allows Moscow, for example, to turn around and say, there you are, you said that Putin's uh, fingerprints were somewhere on this, even if it was only at arm's length but they were on it now you're backing off and that is 
partly, I mean, to what uh, Roger, uh, Paul Rogers is talking about there, it depends how the West reacts, and the West's reaction now mm. is much softer than it was 48 hours ago. Paul Rogers, um, if indeed these... San- at what point do you think stronger sanctions will actually begin to bite? I'm not sure they will work. I mean, sanctions can bite. I mean, the, Russia is nothing like the power that the Soviet Union was. You know, its total GDP is only about the same size as that of Britain, far smaller than Germany and tiny compared with China or Russia or, or America. So sanctions could have an effect. But I think politically it would probably be actually make matters worse because Putin is the kind of person who will be entrenched in a position and will react angrily if he's put under more pressure. But if, if Russian oligarchs start to feel the pinch and put pressure on him, could that result in some kind of movement. It probably could result, but I think what is actually going to happen is that Putin will uh, be much more cautious in in the rebels. Most Russian-speaking Ukrainians do not want to separate out from Ukraine. I mean, Crimea is quite different, but you have a large rebel group, particularly around Donetsk, who basically are determined to do this, uh, and many of the local people actually oppose this. This is why you had a million people going across the border into Russia. So it is not simply that Putin wants to get his hands literally on more of eastern Ukraine. He wants influence, but he he certainly doesn't want to take up uh, part of Ukraine, which is in very serious economic problems anyway. Let, let's talk about Britain's arms sales to Russia, Christopher. Um, w- what is Britain actually selling and who to? Um, they're selling uh, everything from material that can be used in uniforms, and that comes under uh, sales agreements, um, to things like sniper rifles, etc. But not to the Russian military? Uh, they say not to the Mar- Russian military, and therefore you get into the difficulty of the so-called end-user t- certificates, which actually sort of says, OK, you, send, you sell it to se- uh, person A or organisation A, but does it get to organisation uh, B? And if you sell them, for example, as we did in the Middle East, say a Land Rover, can the Land Rover end up with a um, heavy machine gun on the back, etc.? But it's interesting if you look at the arms sales problems that the United Kingdom has and what it has to sort of comply with. Um, I've worked out there are four international arms export agreements that it has to sort of consider before it sells anything at all. 23 arm, international arms control agreements, 14 arms export control policies, 16 countries of concern, which include the Saudi Arabia, one of our biggest customers for arms anyway, because the, a, a country may have a bad human rights record. Mm-hmm. So all these things have to be considerations, which is why Sir John Stanley who is the chairman of the Committee on Arms Exports, is actually pressing his own mm. man, the Prime Minister at the moment, say, show us the detail, show us exactly what you're selling, and in fact, how far has it gone? Are we still selling stuff that we agreed last March not to sell? Well, earlier this week, I spoke to Sir Andrew Wood. He was the British ambassador to Russia between 1995 and 2000, when Yeltsin and then Putin were in power. I asked him if tougher sanctions will have an effect on Putin. It will certainly have an effect. I think the immediate effect will be to make him defiant because his motto is uh, the weak get beaten and he does not want to appear to be weak. On the other hand, increasing sanctions will increase the cost to him of what he's done already, which is to make a, a, a strategic mistake. So he'll have to correct it somehow at some stage. Though the Russian president never intended the plane to be shot down, he is being blamed for his support and the the arming of the pro-Russian activists. Do you think he's lost control of the situation? I think the situation is not completely under control, but he is still the man supplying the money, the weapons, and allowing volunteers, quote-unquote, to cross the border into Ukraine from Russia. So he has got substantial influence if he cares to use it. On the other hand, 
he's led the people of Russia to think that he's fighting uh, Nazis and provocateur in Ukraine, and it's very difficult for him, therefore, to be seen to retreat. If you were the British ambassador to Moscow now, what would you be advising the British government? I would be advising the British government to remain consistent, to stick to our principal objective, which is to get uh, the Russians and the president to obey international law and not to be uh, too concerned about the fact that relations are not good at present. But do you think stronger and tougher sanctions will make a difference? Yes, I think they're inevitable. What the, the uh, air crash or the air murder revealed was three things. First of all, that the situation on the ground is, is armed anarchy. It is not the uh, success in terms of securing territory that uh, Putin must have assumed it would be. Secondly, that the forces on the ground are disunited and uh, militarily um, dysfunctional, should we say. And, and thirdly, that, that uh, because he can't secure the gains that, that, that he had hoped to secure, the political reward for what, what is being done is going to be slim. And the Russian population will increasingly realise the moral, physical and financial cost of what, what they, their president has done in their name. So there will be a reaction against him. In terms of relations with Russia, the Prime Minister David Cameron has said that this is a turning point for Russia. How do you see this crisis developing? I do think the Prime Minister was right that it is a turning point. Our quarrel is with the Russian government of the day, not with the Russian people. I do not believe the Russian people are being particularly well served by their government in general, and certainly not by what they've done in uh, Ukraine. Sir Andrew Wood, thank you very much for your time. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, why are Muslims underrepresented in the armed forces? And HMS Illustrious comes home for the last time. The Foreign Secretary, Philip Hammond, has met the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank city of Ramallah in a bid to end the two-week-long conflict in Gaza. After the meeting, Mr Hammond said he will work closely with US Secretary of State John Kerry and the Egyptian leadership to make sure a long-term solution is found. Uh, Christopher, pretty much a baptism of fire for the new Foreign Secretary, this, isn't it? Yeah, and he's got to understand something that uh, a lot of people have not understood who's been, been doing jobs which are connected with him. Uh, when he's talking about dealing with Hamas, which is really what he's doing, because it's, it's OK him sort of meeting with uh, Mahmoud Abbas, and Mahmoud Abbas doesn't hold any cards in this deck at all. And it's, it really is Hamas. Because? Well, it's, Hamas are controlling Gaza. Mm. It's as simple as that. I mean, what happened? I mean, Gaza in 2006, there was an election, and uh, Hamas won. And they moved in and took over control in 2007. And Hamas actually has a government. It employs 40,000 people, for example. Voted for. Uh, 40,000 people got voted for. The other side of it, of course, is that he can't afford to pay 40,000 people. And so, you know, you've got 50% mm -hmm. unemployment. Now, those sort of pressures he has to understand. And how, how he is goes, he doing? Uh, well, he's only been in the gig for about sort of <laughs> 10 days. But the point is, um, when he talks about the long-term solution... Now, what is the long-term solution? The long-term solution is guaranteeing economic success... Uh, for the Gaza, which it hasn't got at the moment and hasn't, cannot have. Um, he's also got to satisfy the Israelis, or somebody's got to satisfy the Israelis, by getting rid of those tunnels. You know, we talk about the tunnels, build this stuff. Do you know how many tunnels there are? 
in there? I, I couldn't begin to guess, to be well, honest I'll with you. Well, I'll tell you what, a lot of people would be surprised. We're probably talking around a thousand or more tunnels. Mm. You know, it's not something that's dead simple. They've got missile strikes uh, in, in the back still. They started off this, organ- uh, this, this, this attack, that's the Hamas, with 10,000, around about 10,000 missiles, you know. Um, and when you see that that is the complexity that the Israelis have not stopped, they've, they've carried out nearly 4,000, 3,500 strikes mm. on Gaza at the moment. That is the size of the problem that he, Hammond, uh, uh, Secretary Kerry from, from Washington, and also, don't forget LCC, General LCC of, of Egypt. They're the three guys that actually put it together. But they won't put it together if, if Bibi uh, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of, of Israel, says, you know, these people in Gaza sending rockets into Israel. Mm. Why should we stop? Well, Professor Paul Rogers is still with us from the University of Bradford. Uh, Paul, there are figures released today by the UN claiming one child an hour being killed in Gaza since this offensive began. Uh, I mean, it's staggering to think that, that this can continue, isn't it? D- is it going to make a difference when you hear figures like that? It's certainly going to put more pressure on Israel indirectly. But the Israelis... I mean, the classic thing which is said about Israel is it is impregnable in its insecurity. Uh, It is insistent that it is secure, but it can't be secure in the circumstances. The experience of the last three days has been very difficult for the Israelis. They've lost a number of very experienced soldiers. The Golani Brigade has lost nearly 20 people. They find it virtually impossible to disrupt the tunnels. They've destroyed six out of what Christopher said could be as many as a thousand. And also, although it was no great impact uh, in human terms, that one single rocket which hit the Tel Aviv suburb of Yeheva, I think it was, near Ben-Gurion Airport and closed the airport even for two days, the psychological effect in Israel is quite big because they look much more to the West. And if Lufthansa, Alitalia, Air France, Delta and others stop flying even for a day or two, it worries them. They don't know how to handle this, but they handle it in the traditional way of military force. And in the longer term, there has to be uh, a, a proper solution. Christopher? Sometimes you hear that the, the Palestinians, for example, say that we must go back to the 1967 borders. That means the borders of the June War of 1967. Um, Paul has mentioned the Galani Brigade there, and I worked with the Galani Brigade up on uh, the Golan Heights. And we stood further down by the, the border. What were you doing with them? Uh, well, I was just attached to them. And we stood there at the border, right? And we looked across... Uh, to when Ben-Gurion, Ben-Gurion Airport is. Mm. And the guy that was commanding the group I was with, he said, listen, if I stood up here with Estrella, which I think was a shoulder-fired missile, that's all, he said, I could take out almost at random any aircraft that landed at Ben-Gurion. Now, mm. that mentality you have to understand because the leadership that is in Israel at the moment, from Yatanahi, uh, uh, on down, these are their formative years. Mm. From 67 onwards, these are the people that remember uh, Diane and, and, and the great victories. But this is a country that has been at war, constantly at war, since 1948. And that's how they think. Paul Rogers, uh, how do you think any progress can be made in all of this? Uh, in the short term, some sort of ceasefire would be negotiated because both sides have reasons for wanting it. But it will not in any way be a solution to the overall problem. Israel cannot understand that it can't build walls 100 miles high and at some stage there has to be some sort of rapprochement. There are some very sharp, intelligent Israeli strategists who are saying we need to do a deal while we can, but that has not yet hit the body politic as a whole, I'm afraid. 
And fi- I'm, the last point I'd add, Paul, is that there has to be a rapprochement, a true rapprochement, not just between Israels, is Israeli and Hamas, but Hamas and Fatah. Absolutely, yes. And the potential for both territories um, is immense. I mean, they're highly... Ed- I've taught at some of the universities. They're very educated, very frustrated people. The economic growth could be huge if it was allowed to happen. All right. Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford, thank you for your time today. The Defence Secretary says he wants more British Muslims to join the armed forces. Michael Fallon was making his first public speech since taking up the job last week. He was at the launch of the first Armed Forces Muslim Forum, which aims to break down barriers between the UK military and Muslims. Charlotte Cross was there. Representatives from the world of defence rubbed shoulders with prominent members of Britain's Muslim community at the launch of the UK's first Armed Forces Muslim Forum. Defence Secretary Michael Fallon says the aim of the forum is to open up a two-way conversation with the Muslim community and open up the armed forces to more Muslim personnel. Those who keep the peace for us in Britain should be more reflect, more representative of British society. The Muslim community is hugely a huge part now of British society and the armed forces need to reflect that. Of course, Muslims have historically played a large part in Britain's armed forces, with hundreds of thousands fighting alongside the Allies in two world wars. Today, there are 650 Muslims serving in the British armed forces. According to the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nicholas Horton, that's not enough. We would like to see our armed forces become an organisation that is even more representative of the British society, and we would welcome more Muslims to join up, either as regulars or, importantly, as reservists. So how concerned is the Defence Secretary when he hears reports that more young British Muslims are joining ISIS and fighting in Syria than are joining the UK's reserves? Well, part of dealing with radicalisation is to deal with what's normal. And it's normal that our armed forces should reflect the whole of Britain, the whole of British society. And that's why I want more people to consider the role of the armed forces here and indeed to consider joining. That's something those working within the forum hope to achieve. Here's Islamic religious advisor to the armed forces, Imam Asim Haviz. Because the military sometimes may seem uh, distant from society, people may not understand what the armed forces are about. And so therefore by uh, taking the armed forces to the community and bringing the community to the armed forces, we will definitely see a better uh, understanding. This initiative was conceived in the aftermath of the murder in Woolwich last year of Fusilier Lee Rigby to counter the view held by some that British Muslims do not support their armed forces and are hostile towards them. Imam Azim Hafiz aims to change that attitude wherever it exists in our society. It's always possible to change people's minds and but it's, uh, it's, uh, we need to find a way and find a place where conversation and dialogue can be had. And I think the Armed Forces Muslim Forum demonstrates that there is a possibility uh, for, for a dialogue and for a com- uh, conversation uh, to take place. As it's Ramadan, the end of the meeting was marked with the breaking of the fast and evening prayer. So the message is clear. Being a member of the Armed Forces and a Muslim is not incompatible. Britain needs more Muslim men and women to join up if the services are going to represent Britain as a whole. Charlotte Cross for BFBS, the Ministry of Defence.
Uh, so, Christopher, what do you think about what the Defence Secretary said there? Well, all this stuff about it got to be representative society, it is representative society. I mean, you look at if, I mean, most of, these, most of the stuff that the um, Defence Ministry is dealing with at the moment is anecdotal. It, it, it's, not, it's not deep enough analysis. Um, so you have to have a forum, and this, I'm not knocking it, but I'm just pointing out a possible sort of reaction you might get from, especially someone like Michael Fallon now. Um, so he was, we're going to have a forum for anybody, let's say Muslims. And he said, yeah, that's fine. Now, what about next week? Will we have one for Christians? Will we have one for Jews? Will we have one from people from Bexley Heath? Mm. Uh, to be, and the idea that um, military is distant from society, yes, it is. It is not the same as society. Most, la most large groups within British society or any other society, they're not that sort of rubbing shoulders. They don't even work yeah. in those societies. So I think uh, expecting this, to, if, it, if it's just a recruiting angle to get more people in the armed services, well, then fine. But I don't think there is a multicultural uh, you don't think it's necessary? Idea. or I d No, I don't think it is necessary. You're not going to... I mean, somebody else was saying, well, you know, you, you, you stop this and you get uh, mm. uh, people joining ISIS. Well, how many are we talking about? Yeah. 17 at the last count. L let's just talk briefly about radicalisation because uh, this week Theresa May was talking about British Muslim families trying to act if they think that their children might be becoming radicalised. But isn't the problem that perhaps the good families don't even know if they are? Well, it's rather like drugs, isn't it? Drug control. You can turn around and say to a family, you know, you've really got to sort of watch for the signs. Mm. Uh, you know, talk to the people who are working but is it, is on radicalisation. Is it the family unit that's needed to be, to be targeted in order to tackle radicalisation in the UK? There was a paper last year from a group that was looking at British society at the moment, and they said the biggest problem with British society was not simply the breakdown of the family, and that was that the senior part of the family, i.e. parent and grandparent control, uh, had no no longer had any authority and had no longer any example. And to some extent, this is what Theresa May is saying, and there is something in that. But you don't necessarily go to a bunch of kids who are thinking they're going to join I, uh, ISIS or any, any, anything like that. You actually have to go to a much deeper problem, and that is the way that British society is going as a whole. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The Royal Navy's helicopter carrier HMS Illustrious has sailed into port for the final time. Nicknamed Lusty, she returned to Portsmouth Naval Base with the 700-strong sh ship's company on board, ending 32 years of service, which began with the Falcons' War. Her last commanding officer, Captain Mike Hutley, told BFBS she's a very special ship. Well, this is an extremely poignant day for me. Uh, as the captain of Illustrious, the last captain, what, what a fantastic honour to be given. Um, a ship with such an incredible name and an incredible history. So sad in some ways, but also, uh, I, I think, positive in, in what's coming for the Navy in the future. As the ship's company of Illustrious, we've been reflective over the last few days, particularly of the stuff we've done in our time on board, like the Philippines and other things that we've done. But also, we were lucky enough to be at the Queen Elizabeth naming a couple of weeks ago. So we saw the future firsthand, and for many of my ship's company, they'll go on to that ship, and they're very excited about that. Well, joining us now is Mike Critchley, publisher of Warships World magazine. Hello, Mike. Um, a, was it a sad day for you? Uh, sad in a way, I guess, but we're talking about a 32-year-old ship, and, you know, the country can't keep pouring money into 32-year-old ships to keep them up and running. Mm. Um, her, her role in the Royal Navy really finished when the Harriers were 
shamefully deleted from uh, the Royal Navy, and she's, uh, yes, she's been in service since then, uh, but just as a helicopter carrier. So, um, you say sad, but you're realistic about it. Which deployments stand out for you during that 32 years in service? Well, I, I'm old enough to remember the, the Great Panic in 1982 when she was still being built on the Tyne um, and she was needed down in the Falklands a long way away as quick as possible and everything was truncated to get her south as fast as possible, which she did. I mean, she even commissioned at sea, I've never heard of that before, um, to get her there, there so that Invincible could come Commissioned home. at sea? Yes, yep. Yeah, How did no you do that then? Well, I guess you fly the VIPs on board and, um, you know, she, she, she was just rushed south as fast as possible with people still working on board to complete her mm. uh, from the shipyard. Um, you know, the urgency was such that they couldn't spare her to come into Portsmouth for a day or so and, and have a commissioning ceremony. Christopher, um, you've been on board HMS Illustrious, haven't you? Wasn't that easy to get her? We heard a bit about the commissioning there, but not that easy to get her in the first place. Well, it wasn't. I mean, if you go back to the whole idea, and, and uh, I think Mike was involved in this as well, uh, with the whole class, and what happened, you know, Treasury, uh, I happened to know, because I was on recall at the time, and there was the... Uh, uh, the Treasury said, well, you can't have a aircraft carrier? What are you going to do with an aircraft carrier? You can't afford aircraft carriers anymore. <laughs> Had that and, since uh, then, we haven't we? <laughs> before, and before that. And so they were sitting around and the guy that was director of plans at the time said, well, we actually don't want an aircraft carrier. And what we would, what we could have, uh, was it Mike? He called it the through-deck cruiser. Through-deck cruiser, that was how <laughs> yeah. they Yeah, we said, I had a through-deck cruiser. Cunard or something. And I said to this guy, I said, uh, tell me, so I said, well, what, I said, what is the through-deck cruiser? He said, well, it's very simple. He said, aeroplane comes along, lands on a deck and goes through to the other end. <laughs> He said, but if I hear you say that to the Treasury, he said, I'll have your balls, I will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how she started. It, was a, it wasn't a con, but it, it just the names made it very easy to get her. So, Mike, we heard Captain Utley um, earlier talk of a very positive future for the Royal Navy. Did you share his excitement and optimism? Well, the bottom line is that this ship has paid off early because the Navy has run out of engineers um, and that goes back 10 years when they more or less cut off recruiting of young engineers to go to HMS Rally. Um, and now um, the effect of that cutting off of recruiting is being felt. So you've got middle-ranking engineers. Mm. The um, industry is very keen to recruit. They're very well-trained and they're used to discipline, that sort of thing. Um, and the Navy just doesn't have enough engineers to go around to keep illustrious going and send to... Uh, ocean and send up to Scotland to start standing by the Queen Elizabeth when she comes on stream. She's only got a ship's company of 100 or so at the moment, but that will build steadily mm. as she gets closer to uh, being completed. Christopher? Mike, it was, it was partly the Navy's fault because they were given a lot of conditions, weren't they? And they closed our Manadon, didn't they, where they were training people? And, yes. And that, so it, mm. it's not just nasty government up the road trying to sort of fix it for the Navy. The Navy's got a lot to sort of take on board and, and take the blame for. Yes, I mean, they were, it's all crystal ball gazing 10 years in advance, and who knew what was going on down the line, really? Mm. And, and people are expensive, so, you, you know, moves were made to cut back on expenses. Um, but, of course, people do go sick, and they do go off on courses. 
Um, so that the pool of labour that you can draw on is actually a lot more diminished than, than you would expect. All right, Mike Critchley, thank you very much for your time today. That's Mike Critchley, publisher of Warships World magazine. Um, Christopher, before we go this week, um, what else is around? Let's talk a little bit about Syria, shall we? More yeah. than a thousand people killed this week. Yeah, or last week, last week we know the figures. Last week, I mean, sorry, yeah. And sometimes there's so many getting killed that we actually just cannot pick up the figures at all. Um, and also there's a softening by the Americans and the British about Assad so, himself. In so much as that they haven't been very vocal recently, have they at all? They haven't, but you see, if you, if you, if you listen to what they're saying and in their communiques at the moment, um, at one point they said that Assad must go. Now they're not actually saying that so much. The other thing is the United Nations has appointed a new uh, a new guy to try and fix it. Mm. Um, uh, and this Stefan is Stefan de Mistura, who was born in Sweden and hence the Stefan, but he is an Italian as well and was in Italian government. Um, he's got a hard job, you know, he takes over from Black Brahimi, who said it's an impossible job. So um, the talking will go on, but it will go on. And the Syrians, Assad has said, this man is a very honest man. It doesn't sound very much, but in diplomatic speak, that means a lot. Commonwealth Games just getting underway. T time maybe to reflect just briefly on the relevance of the Commonwealth these days. Yeah, people talk about the Commonwealth. Oh, what's the point of the Commonwealth? You know, there's a bunch of 50-odd, 53 countries, and what do they do? I'll tell you what they do. Um, the militarily, they're absolutely fabulous. A lot of the peacekeeping operations, and not only do they make contributions, they actually command them. And they do so, and a lot of their commanding officers gone through Santos, and that's probably why they're so good. That's all we've got time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can follow us at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. James Hurst will be here this time next week, but for now, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.